You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday at 10.30 a.m. or 7 p.m. I'm very glad to be here. I have to admit, though, I'm, I'm going to have to work very hard to stay on script tonight or this morning. I, uh, I wrote these reflections earlier this week, and then I went to a conference the last two days, and I'll, I'll mention a little bit about what my friend Nick had to say at that. It's just been with me ever since I was with him yesterday. I think it addresses some of what I'm trying to get us to consider this morning together, so I will try to stay true to my notes, but uh, I might wander a bit, so forgive me. I hope it's the spirit. So I want to consider how do we stay faithful. I had originally worked on this topic coming right in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearings. On that Thursday, I was getting ready to speak at our Frankfurt Avenue congregation, and so I threw away (laughs) what I was going to say then and rewrote a sermon reflecting on some of that. And so Some of this comes from those reflections, but, you know, even since I wrote the notes that I modified earlier this week, we've learned about bombs and more gun violence, the solutions suggested by some of our leaders, or at least one, include hiring armed guards for our places of worship. The suggestion is that you have somebody stand at the door with a gun. I think these days are evil that these bankrupt ideas about how to protect ourselves are really straight out of the devil's playbook. It's virtually and vitally important that we think together about how to stay faithful in these times as they really are. And I would contend, as the New Testament certainly contends, that our days are evil. So I want to bookend my my remarks today with some wisdom from one of my favorite guides, C.S. Lewis. One of the first books I read as a new Christian was Mere Christianity, which Lewis actually wrote in the 1940s in the midst of the dark days of World War II when the Nazi evil was at its peak. He considers good and evil. This is something that he says. Good and evil both increase at a compound interest. That is why the little decisions that you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Obviously, he's really thinking about war a lot. (laughs) But the nugget of this, the little decisions that we make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. That's kind of the opposite of what we're taught everywhere in our culture, right? We have to grab the moment. Lewis is saying something far different. 
another one of the wonderful experiences in my very rich life from which I'm grateful is that I was with MCC in Chicago uh, weekend before last. The uh, MCC yearly verse, the verse that they sort of carry out through all the organization, it changes every year. And this year, I think appropriate to your theme of the season, is from Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Some days, I really just look to MCC to bring me out of the despair, to remember to choose kindness in every small way that I can during the day. MCC is your relief and development organization that we have been a part of for uh, since the early 40s when our larger denomination was working on conscientious objection as a possibility to World War II. And uh, so we became a, a partnering member of this worldwide relief development and peace organization. It's Mennonite Central Committee, but we're not Mennonites. We're just cousins to them, but we are MCC. So when you give money here, you're giving money around the world. And these folks do stuff with it. This is um, Rebecca Burkholder and Blaine Durston. Uh, they are the area directors of MCC for Asia. And they were with us in Chicago to give their own personal report. And of the many stories that they told, one that stood out for me was how relationships internationally really impact our ability to do good. MCC workers like Rebecca and Blaine used to work directly with the North Koreans, to give you an example, in order to get relief materials into North Korea where people really were desperate and continue to be desperate. So they would bring in relief kits with partners there in North Korea. But now, because of changes in the political scene, they have to deal with the US government and that prevents them in many ways from being able to deliver the good to people in great need. They go through various sanctions, through UN interpretations of those sanctions. So what this means is that now our attempts to cross over and give that cup of cold water in Jesus' name run up against bureaucracy rather than relationship. One of the tenets of MCC, I would contend one of the tenets of our Christian faith, is that we base stuff on love, on relating to one another. Some relief kits have been banned from entry into, into North Korea because there's a water filter that is included basically to provide clean water, particularly to children. That's what's targeted with these particular kits. But this little water filter works on a centrifuge model. It spins. And so it's been associated with nuclear centrifuges and banned. This is nonsense, of course. But in this case, good was stopped because of the way it spins. I think these kinds of things are worth noting, the absurdity of what's happening in our world today. And your theme for the season about necessary losses strikes me as being really vitally important, especially in these little ways that Lewis is telling us we can make a whole world of difference within ourselves and ultimately he would contend in the world. 
One of my favorite books is called Necessary Losses. It's by Judith Vorst. It's a very old book. You could probably get it for a penny on Amazon. In it, she talks about how we have to let go of some of our most cherished longings in order to grow up and mature into healthy adults. This is a normal process involving letting go and changing our minds and our hearts. What we're seeing in our world today, I would suggest, is a tragic inability to do this creative and important suffering. Instead, we have bullies shouting lies, claiming superiority, and stirring up fear. It's a very tough day to be faithful. And I would contend that the answer is for us to become more religious, and by that I mean more kind to one another in the grace of Christ. One of the things that Nick got me thinking about most and troubled my sleep with was this attack on truth that seems to be going wholesale in our culture. Nick has been studying rumors for over 25 years from a psychological lens. He defined rumor as unsubstantiated information. So it's information passed around without any touch points to evidence of any kind, any substance that can be marked as connecting to reality. He pointed out that we are in a fight against evil, and he reminded us that this is a fight. And I think I maybe had drifted away from that, because his words just have been ringing in my mind ever since. I woke up stirred up with them. Truth is being eroded at every turn, even in our postmodern era, long before Trump or any of the kinds of things that are disturbing us these days, the whole postmodern era called into question whether any of us could know truth. Could we, from a psychological perspective, I think the question then becomes, do you care about being connected to reality, to something outside of yourself? Yes, perspective makes a tremendous difference, but we have been called and, and sort of wooed into this perspective that you cannot know what is true. And that's fundamentally unchristian. It's just that's just what it is. That is not a Christian tenet. And I think we need to look at it from that perspective. I can be mistaken about the truth, but that doesn't mean the truth isn't there. I can be mistaken about my perception of reality, but that does not mean there isn't a reality to connect with, to continue to seek, to try to understand more fully. I decided this morning just to read every passage in the gospel where Jesus speaks of truth. And he does it a whole lot. I was reading in the New Living um, Translation 65 times just in the four gospels, Jesus starts out what he's going to say with the phrase, I tell you the truth. 65 times. It matters to speak the truth, to speak it plainly. I hope we'll all consider telling the truth every day, that we'll really consider doing that, and so resist the evil of our day. I hope you'll all consider asking others to tell the truth. Otherwise, we erode our relationships completely. Love becomes suspect. When, we, when, when my guys were young, 
I remember the thing that upset me the most that they would do when they were pushing the boundaries, as children do, was when they would tell me a lie. You can verify this with Ben later if you'd like. Maybe he won't remember it quite like I did. But I remember saying to them and really feeling it and thinking it that, the, that telling a lie was really the very worst thing they could do. And I would say something along the lines of, it damages my ability to relate to you. I want to go back to some of what I was referencing when we were in the midst of the mayhem of the Kavanaugh hearings, because I, I think this is still really relevant to this, this whole subject. So going back to another old book, The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, first published in 1963. I was a kid then, 10. But I didn't read it until uh, I was in college, so about eight years later. And it really marked my journey as a Christian woman trying to figure out where in the world I fit, what kinds of gifts I'd been given, and what was my purpose as a follower of Jesus. And one of the, com the concepts that most stayed with me from Fredan's critique of our culture, and it stays with me still, is the focus that she noted, and actually coming out of psychology is where this drift came from, this drift from function or towards functionality. We no longer thought about change. We, we kind of moved a little bit over, and rather than considering a good life as a life that was in pursuit of changing, of, of transformation, we began to think of a good life as simply being functional. And I think this involves a tremendous devaluing of human beings. And so uh, that's, I want to talk a little bit about this this trend away from change. I think it begins with Freud in my field, way back, way, way, way back. But Freud still continues to influence us today. And he had the, these ideas that, um, that the world broke out sort of, if you wanted to be a functioning human being, you needed to figure out how to work, how to be productive, how to manage that. And you needed to learn how to love Although for Freud, that really centered on how to be sexual, how to use your body and, and work at that. And uh, unfortunately, some of you, if any of you are looking at psychology today, Freud's been debunked on some things because he was a white male with all that privilege. It did certainly impact how he saw the world and what he was trying to explore. I think he got some things right, nonetheless. But, um, but this shifting of our goals, that we would no longer focus on the evolution of ourselves, if I could borrow that term, this, this process of change that we can all continue to be in, even me, I just turned 65, I'll have more to say about that in a minute, but uh, to, to just trying to get by in the world has tremendous impact, and I think it's negative. I think it actually touches on this whole theme of evil and the necessary loss that you and I might face today is to go ahead and fight that, to lose the cultural functionality focus and to instead embrace this deeper lifelong change that I think the gospel's called for. So that's Joey. I want to give you a little context. Joey is two. I love her deeply. She is my granddaughter. 
these are the people that I, uh, the, the people, really important people that I celebrated my 65th birthday with. That's Josiah and Brendan. Josiah's our oldest. He's almost 12. Oh, there's Hannah. And then that's me and Theo. I've really been, <laughs> it really is Theo. <laughs> Being Theo, adorable as ever. So last month I turned 65. And as I approached this milestone, I've, I've really been thinking about what kind of a world I'm leaving to these very important people. So some of what I'm saying to you comes a little bit with that emotional edge to it for me. I've been thinking a lot about this process and uh, how we are all so shaped by the places and times in which we live. Lewis, when he's trying to tell us <laughs> about fighting evil, about embracing kindness, about of all of that work, it's all filled with war images because he's writing in a desperate time where the fighting is clear and the bombs are dropping over his head. I think it makes a difference our time and our place and how it influences us. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be thoughtful about that. We need to be prayerful about that for the sake of our children, but for the sake of our own selves, our hearts and our souls. So I ran into this article in the New York Times and it really got me thinking about how these times have influenced me and what that ultimately might mean in what I pass on to my grandkids. As I looked at that process going on in the Senate Judiciary Committee, as I watched the people involved, especially, yes, the men who were screaming, who were <laughs> almost spitting, they were so mad. I think some of them were spitting, although it was unintentional. In my offices at Circle Counseling, I've continued to hear stories of countless women who talk about abuse and assault that they have experienced, that, that they actually have accepted as normal behavior. We human beings internalize that which is around us. We take in messages and they begin to shape how we see ourselves and ultimately how we even see God, I would suggest. And so many people need Circle of Hope, I think, right now. Because I hope what you find here is an open space to reimagine who God is in the light of the truth, in the light of the gospel, in the light of hopefully people telling you the truth, not lying to you, working hard at this. Are our relationships perfect? No. But the bottom, the, the intention maybe of what your pastors are looking to do is create a space. What your leaders here are looking to do, your cell leaders, what people who stick around here, I hope, are finding is this space to let the Spirit of God come anew and re-envision for us who God is. In light of all of the realities, the stories of children not getting devices to help them get clean water, because of nonsense and bureaucracy. The realities of women being raped, of violence sexually against men and women across our country, the statistics are staggering how many people have experienced this. 
we live in a time where from the highest, most powerful people in the land, we hear lies every single day. And we know that they are lies, and the solution is just to say them louder and say them more often. And we human beings internalize what we've unconsciously been swimming around in, in this culture. My entire Christian journey has been about becoming more and more of who God thinks I am rather than who my culture tells me to be. And I hope you journey in that way too, allowing more and more of who God thinks you are rather than who your culture tells you you are, maybe your memories tell you who you are from difficult experiences in your family. Maybe it's messages about who you are that you are interpreting, even from interactions in your cell. Hold those in the light. Go back to all of these places where Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And then he begins to tell you how, value, how valuable you are. This article by William Storr that was in the, um, in the New York Times really captured something for me. He talks about a lot of this cultural influence through the lens of economies. And in the midst of that, this one quote comes up from Margaret Thatcher, another history lesson for you. 19, she was still prime minister in the 1990s. During the reign of uh, Reagan in our country, she was the prime minister in England. And this is what she talks about. She says, Economics are the method. The object is to change the soul. They are after our souls. <laughs> That's what they want to change. One of the things that Friedan tracked so carefully in her book was how women in particular had been sold a view of themselves, particularly in post-World War II US Western culture, a view of themselves as a homemaker. Now the reason that was important was because if, if the women were homemakers, they were gonna buy stuff to make the home, and they did. And so the economics would soar. The stock markets, the whole world took on a different shape as consumerist culture really became rooted in the United States and across the Western world, and now I think even across the entire world. We are taught to buy things in order to fulfill our roles, which promise to somehow fulfill us. And yet the shift has been vivid that we are no longer even relating to other people. We are relating to things, and we are being related to by our culture as consumers, as people who can and should buy things. It's a dehumanizing role. Our identities, I would contend, our view of ourselves, how we find our way in the world is really in danger. Our identities are not safe. Our souls are not ours, not safe if they are based in the roles in which we function, even if those roles are roles we might seek. 
like being a wife or being a mother or being a boss or being accepted, being a friend. Back to a quote from this store article I referenced. Here's what he has to say as he's looking at these changes, these big shifts from an uh, economic perspective. The relentless focus on the individual, combined with an increasingly harsh economic environment for the ordinary person, has proved toxic for our mental health. We individualists are great at crediting ourselves for our victories, and we honor people who do that loudly and proudly. We even make them president. Store didn't say that, I did, sorry. But we are just as good, we are just as good at blaming ourselves for failure. And today, exacerbated by the rise of social media, more and more of us are feeling like failures. You get the turn here? There's really an ironic twist. Can you hear this chant about who you are supposed to be, perfect or a failure? No other options. It's this or it's that. Please note, neither of these are true. They are fabrications of an identity. They are something we've been sold. They're a bill of goods. They're rotten to the core. I believe they are evil. They are even more damaging than the former homemaker role that Ferdan was trying to upset because they exclude relationship almost entirely other than the artificial relationship that is constructed between a person and a product sold to that person to make them what? More functional. More able to do things, to get along and get ahead. Don't you hear that? We trade our birthright for a bowl of porridge again. Store goes on. We call this sensitivity to signals of failure perfectionism. This mode of thinking is a predictor of self-harm, depression, and suicide. He goes on to list a bunch of studies. I'd be glad to give it to you if you'd like to list them, but I, in the, the uh, interest of time, I'm just going to push that. But the, the real fact is we are experiencing spikes. We feel it at circle counseling. Across the college world, college counselors are overwhelmed because our rates of anxiety, of depression, suicidality is on the rise in every category across our culture. We are in a huge mess in our culture. And I would contend we have lost our way because we are trying so hard to be functional, to fill a role we believe will fulfill us. We are laboring under an unbearable load, and we actually think that that burden is our freedom. We are being lied to, and we're lying to ourselves. So my message is simple this morning. We really need to take back our souls. Don't let this crap hold you, even further back in history from the Apostle Paul. I believe we take back our souls by thinking, or changing how we think, and learning, I hope, how to teach our children to think differently as well.
From now on, we don't look at anyone the way the world does. Please don't. Please figure out what that means. At one time, we looked at Christ in this way, but we don't anymore. When anyone lives in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is all from God. He brought us back to himself through Christ's death on the cross, and he has given us the task of bringing others to him through Christ. I would say to you today, I do say to you today, that this is psychological safety. Here is transformation rather than functionality, written large in the New Testament. Our purpose is in Christ. Our freedom is in Christ. Who you are is in Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. We are in a relationship, and our whole lives ought to be about making relationships. God is our all in all. You can't do too much of this. You can't be too religious. You might be mistaken about your belief or practice. It took me years and years of walking with Jesus before I could grasp how deeply damaged I'd been by people who had convinced me that God did not want a woman to teach or preach. It was a long time praying before I began to see how I devalued myself because I was female. Regardless of the oppression outside of me, that internal tyrant was the unbearable, life-crushing element in my life, my own view of myself and how I lived that out, my condemnation of myself when I wanted to think and to write and to talk and to plan and to direct and to lead. Christ demanded that I change this diminished and degraded view of myself. He led me to the still waters and he restored my soul. We need to go through these necessary losses. We need to drop these leaves of who we are. We need to drop the cultural leaves and let them ferment in the ground. You know, winter is worth something. It's making food for the beauty of spring. Only in losing our old views can we discover the deeper reality of who we are in God's eyes. And he's going to keep teaching us that. It will be new every morning. Who we really are in Christ. Back to my friend as I close here. Lewis is also writing a bit about niceness here. And I think it's really important. So it's a bit of a long quote. So maybe if you close your eyes, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to concentrate a little more on it. Niceness, wholesome, integrated personality is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow nice, just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. My own parentheses here, even that's being challenged, right? We're not supposed to be nice anymore, and we're certainly not supposed to provide for those who are the most needy. Back to Lewis. But we must not suppose that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people content in their own niceness, looking to no further turned away from God 
would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became human to turn creatures into children, not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of human. Here's his image for you, capture this. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings. May even give it an awkward appearance. Friends, we are winged horses. We may not be fully there yet, but we are winged horses. Let your wings grow. Embrace the challenge. Resist the evil of our day. Take back your soul. When I was at the MCC meetings, we sang a hymn, Praise the One Who Breaks the Darkness. And all of you wonderful musicians, if you'll come up now, I, I asked them if they would teach us this song. It's sung to a very familiar melody to people who like hymns. It's the same melody as Come Thou Fount. I hope when you sing this song, though, with these new words about praising the one who breaks the darkness, that that'll really soak in for you, that we can offer kindness and niceness because we have been given new identities that do not require us to fight for power or fear those who do clutch it. We belong to God. What we will be, that's only what God can imagine. Let's teach our children that our souls are not based in economics or in the roles we play. It's not based in our sexuality, our gender, or anything like it. Our souls are in the hands of the God who gave himself for us and who calls us into the, his kingdom of light and hope. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.